Hey everybody, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, our guest comes to us from Los Angeles. His name is Curtis Chin. He's a co-founder of the Asian American Writers Workshop in New York City, and he served as the nonprofit's first executive director. He went on to write for network and cable television before transitioning to social justice documentaries. He has screened his films at over 600 venues in 16 countries, and he's written for CNN, Bon Appetit, the Detroit Free Press, and the Emancipator Boston Globe. And his memoir, Everything I Learned I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant, was published in 2023. I should also add that my brother is a huge fan, and he just saw you recently, and he is uh, almost done with your memoir, so he's... Uh, begged me to ask you certain questions, and we'll see if we have time for them. But uh, with no further delays, okay. <laughs> how's it going, Curtis? Great. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be on your show. Look yeah, forward definitely. to an interesting conversation today. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. Um, and I, uh, he sent me some excerpts from your memoir, and I read a couple of them, and they were fantastic. Um, I'm also a writer, and I also run a writing workshop here in Phoenix, so it's very mm. cool to meet a fellow author. Um, but your memoir is totally fascinating, and it's a subject I care a lot about, Um because it's about culture and food, and also the city of Detroit. So let's start there. Um, we usually ask our guests, uh, how old are you, where were you born, and what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Uh, yeah, well, I actually talk about you know my origin story um, in the book, where it's uh, 1967, Detroit's going through a very difficult time period, as is much of the country because of uh, racial tensions. Um, you know, for the first time ever, my family's Chinese restaurant had to close for five straight days. And during that time period, my parents actually managed to find time to have sex. And nine <laughs> months later, I was born as their riot baby uh, in 1968. And so that's my origin story. Um, Sometimes people ask me, oh, why do you talk about racial justice and, you know, uh, issues like that so much? And I'm like, well, without that incident, I probably wouldn't be around. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's my background. That totally makes sense. And that's awesome. Um, and uh, do, you, do you think you're a part of a generation here in America or do you feel like you're not involved in that conversation? Um, well, I am part of a generation um, in a variety of different ways. I mean, you know, my family's been in this country since the 1800s, um, you know, so there's a bit of distance from that. But uh, in terms of being, uh, you know, Asian American and, you know, the changes that have been going on, like in terms of the civil rights movement. Yeah, I definitely feel like I'm part of that generation that really first became aware. Um, but then also as, as a gay person, I feel like I'm part of the AIDS generation, mm -hmm. having grown up in the 80s when, you know, frankly, a lot of people were dying um, at a very young age. Uh, and that really um, does mark that generation of, of gay, um, of the gay community. Exactly. Yeah. And, and your book, it connected me. I mean, you're a great writer. That's the whole, you oh, know, thanks. I don't pick up a book. And if I'm not, if I don't feel like the author's trying to have a relationship with me, it's not very interesting to read it. So I did, I really got that feeling from you. So I'm curious, what code are you using as an author in your memoir, not the other things you've written, but well, I, you know, for the memoir, it really is just, you know, my experiences growing up as someone who's, who at that as a young person trying to figure out, you know, where they fit into the world. I mean, in some ways, you could also say uh, it's spoken from the perspective of a middle child, because mm. I feel like that was one of the defining characteristics of my life was that, you know, I was always that middle child who got sort of lost, who wasn't paid attention to. And I was truly trying to use that to my advantage, right, in terms of um, carving out a space for myself. Uh, and so I think that's, that's what it is. It's about a, it's about a young person trying to like figure out who they are. Um, 
so that that would be the voice it's it's, it's a young person um so that's cool no that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. uh, one of the excerpts i read was when your family took you to visit the tombs of your ancestors i think it was called tomb sweeping day Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like really interesting because it was, it was written obviously in great diction as an adult, but from the child's perspective of like, what the heck I'm bringing gifts to give them to other people. I don't get to eat this amazing food. Um, how, um, my son just, uh, cause it might come up. He's, um, half Thai and half American and mm-hmm. the Thai mm-hmm. is actually really, um, from China. So he's DNA. If he took mm-hmm. like a 23 me, he'd be Chinese, but he's Thai. Um, and it's a, it's a similar culture uh, in my opinion, which is like, it's a community oriented culture. Like you said about last names, like, um, your Mm -hmm. first name is your last name and it it goes in a different Mm -hmm. order. So how do you feel about that? Like identity politics are so prominent in America now. And like your identity and your, it's always, you know, the person of the year a couple of years ago was you, and we have the iPhone and YouTube and all these things. How do you feel about the two cultures? Since you actually have a familiarity with the polar opposite of what most Americans are raised with? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't see it as uh, so stark as as the way you're sort of presenting it. Okay, I feel like, yeah. you know, as an Asian American, I feel like it's already blended in. Mm. You know, like for me, I don't go through uh, that like, uh, like, oh my God, well, which part is Asian and which part's American? Because I also think that you know these terms are fluid anyway, right? Like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be Asian? Asia itself has been so influenced by Western culture these days, right? Yeah. Um, that it's changed, but American culture, right? is so inclusive of people of color and Asian culture. I mean, like, you know, you look at a drink like boba, right? Mm -hmm. Are you going to say that that's strictly an American, I mean, an Asian drink, or is it actually now an American drink? It's so ubiquitous. It's all over the place, right? Yeah. you know, and so, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't stick to those terminologies as, as, um, you know, I don't find them as useful, uh, for me. I, I, go by the more fluid definitions of these things because I like it. And I think that's, that's the um, exciting thing about these terms is that we can actually help change them and, and fuse different ideas into them. I love that answer. Um, and I think what I was trying to express was more about the um, like, think about your ancestors and think about the community before you think about yourself. <clears throat> is that, uh, do you feel that because of the way you were raised, you have a better grip on that than the average American who wasn't introduced to that? Or do you think that is a part of the whole overall American culture now? Um, well, I think that there are certain cultures traditionally, um, you know, that that are put more of an emphasis on the community versus the individual, right? You know, I don't think it's just Asian cultures. I think there are other cultures too, Um you know, that, 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 uh, think about that. Uh, and so definitely like within our family household, we definitely uh, did focus on the family, how things impacted the families. You never really just made an individual decision without thinking of how it would impact other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the perfect example would be like the coming out experience, which is in the book is that, uh, you know, I never really worried that my parents were going to say, kick me out or disown me. They, they would never do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did worry about coming out to them because I didn't want to disappoint them. And I was worried about how it would impact them, you know. And so uh, coming out, you know, in, in you know, other ways and other communities, be like, I, I'm coming out. I'm going to be my own individual, you know, be damned. You know, everybody has to accept me, um, you know, for who I am. But I, I don't know if I, I didn't I didn't approach it like that. And for me, it was like it was a personal decision, but I needed to weigh in how it impacted my family. Right. Wow. And so if that's what you're talking about, then yeah, maybe, maybe there's, there's a little bit more of that. 
but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's actually a good thing. No, it sounds like a very good thing. Yeah, I think the main uh, line of questioning that I'm asking in, on this particular subject, mm-hmm. from intersectionality to you know the last one, is more about um, the exp- your unique experience explained back mm-hmm. to other people who didn't have a chance for that, and then also to hear your thoughts reflected with theirs. So I mean, it's it's wonderful to hear your answers, and I, I I'm I'm really happy about them because uh, something that's happened to me as I've gotten older in America in particular, cause I've traveled a lot is I feel a little bit sad about the hostility when people want to enter into a, a question oriented dialogue about these subjects. Um, so like I'll be in a room, I grew up in Oakland, California and before like a person can even get the question out of their mouth, people start saying like, well, that was rude. That was offensive. Whereas the person's trying to get a hold on like subjects that they don't want to be offensive about. And so I think, people like you who write memoirs and who do social justice work are really helping with that cause. Um, and, and it might sound like I'm shifting gears, but to me, it's very related. You, you also are from Detroit, like you said, and you're from the time period of one of the most famous riots in American history and Detroit. Mm-hmm. It's not like its reputation is great today either. You know, it's, it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's getting better. Yeah, it is it's getting I, better. I love Detroit. I've only been twice, but I, I loved it. Um, and also because I'm from Oakland, I feel like a kinship towards a city that yeah. a lot of people just broadly brush over as like, Oh, full of crime gangs, not worth mm-hmm. visiting scary. So how do you address that in particular, like violence and gangs and criminality and all that? How do you calm people down? So to speak, if that comes up. Um, I don't think I need to calm people down. That's not my job in life. Nice. I can only present my experiences. I mean, I joke about it probably. Like, so for instance, um, my husband and I, uh, live in downtown LA, but we've been living down here for over 20 years. Um, and back then, you know, Skid Row and, uh, you know, crime was a much bigger issue, right? Before it started to gentrify. And the first week we moved down here, I jokingly said like, uh, and the first week we moved down here, they found two dead bodies in a car. And I jokingly said, oh, I'm from Detroit. You need three dead bodies before I freak out. <laughs> um, you know, so I don't know. Um, you know, for me, it's that's just my experience. And, you know, I talk about it in the book. It's like, you know, uh, I grew up in the Detroit in the 80s. It was not just the auto industry that was struggling, but there was crack cocaine. There was AIDS. I knew five people murdered by the time I was 18 years old. That's just my childhood, right? I don't. I don't judge it as better or worse than anybody else. It's just the the hand that my family was dealt, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I don't don't feel I need to explain it to people. I do think that people are sort of surprised because they have certain assumptions about people, right? Mm -hmm. Like based off of who they are, what they look like, you know, and what experiences that they think these people have. But, I mean, maybe that's that's a good thing is, right, is that I can – you know, challenge or or, or uh, upend some of these assumptions that they have about people, about class, about race, about sexual orientation or whatnot, right? Yeah, that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And um, yeah, I think um, I get defensive personally when people try to say that a city I've lived in and loved is a bad place and that it's got bad people. So I think that's where my question comes from. But I, I love your answer. And I think it also leads me to want to know more about um, what is your position and your end game with the social justice work you're doing? Like, obviously it's not the only thing you do with your life. You're married, you have other talents and other interests and stuff. So, uh, is there like a goal that you have in mind? Like, well, once I achieve that, I can relax or I'm already relaxed and I've achieved it. Anything like that? 
<laughs> you mean we have world peace already? Yeah, that's what it's exactly what I'm asking. Is world peace the ultimate goal, or do you think that's impossible? Uh, uh, no, I just want people to be nicer to each other. That's my cool. only goal. Yeah, just be nicer to each other. Just be friendlier, and you know, give people. I mean, it's a very Buddhist idea, right? To just compassion. I don't know what what uh, religious background your your spouse might have, but you know, um, you know, we're taught compassion, right? Just being more empathetic towards other people, and yeah, if like referring to an earlier question that you had if someone has a question don't necessarily assume that you know it's it's coming from a bad place it might just be wanting to to understand a situation and they may not be the most articulate in terms of how they ask it but they're trying and i think that's what you have to give people credit for sometimes you know um and just understand that you know everything is about change and you know we're all just trying to do the best we can um and I feel like as long as your intentions are good and you're headed in the right way, then then I think that's okay, right? Yeah, I like that. And I think intentionality mm-hmm. matters a lot. Um, and that's actually, mm-hmm. we've kind of now gone into the real purpose of this uh, podcast, which is it's a metaphysical podcast in which we want our mm-hmm. guests to explain how much they do or don't think about death and how much that does or does not affect the way they live. So the first question we always ask is, um, what do you think is going to happen to you specifically when you die? Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks! Um, well, I mean, I, I, do I feel in reincarnation or, you know, some, I mean, obviously there's a difference in the body, right? Uh, but I don't really think about it too much. I do feel like my energy that I'm, you know, uh, producing or contributing to this world, you know, it does have an impact, right? We all do, right? Like for the time that we're here on, on the planet, um, how that manifests itself or what is the uh, ramifications of it? What's the uh, dominal effect of it, whatever. Hopefully it's, it's for good. And that's what I would say. Like, that's what happens after I pass. Cool. And like, what, what is the impact I had while I was here? And have you ever had like what someone would call a spiritual or a metaphysical experience, something that was impossible to define or that shook you and changed your world perspective? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, uh, uh, so now that I've finished this first book, right. Um, people ask me, what's the next book you're working on? And I actually think it's going to be what, what people call a grief memoir because, um, my parents were in a car accident a number of years ago and my dad sadly passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was the one who had to go back to Detroit to sell the family business. And that was probably a defining experience for me. Um, I don't think it's quite what you're asking for. Right. Uh, um, but it definitely, um, you know, forced me to think about things, right. Mm -hmm. And and connection to family and, you know, history and and legacy in some ways. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sorry Mm -hmm. for your loss. That's uh, terrible. And no, thanks. um, Yeah. That's, uh, from one writer to another, that is a great uh, idea to write that book. I think that would really help a lot of people. I did um, work in hospice for a couple of years of my life, and it was very life-shaping and changing, the same way your experience was. It wasn't metaphysical or spiritual so much as just practicality meets um, my heart, you know? And um, Yeah, I want to write a book that's useful for myself, right? Because mm-hmm. I have unresolved feelings about my dad's passing, because mm-hmm. To be frank, I mean, we weren't getting along, you know, right before his passing. Not, not that we were like, um, you know, like, uh, like we hated each other. It just, I was really annoyed 
you know, with my dad and a lot of decisions I was making in his life. So we were, we still talked every week. I was just really frustrated with him. Maybe that's a better word. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I was frustrated with my dad. Um, and so I feel like uh, uh, it would be good to write that book to sort of resolve this for myself. But then I sort of think like, well, what what would a book like this be useful to people, right? Because mm-hmm. when you're a writer, you're always trying to think of that aspect too, right? Like yeah. you're writing for yourself, but you're also writing for an audience. What would what would my experiences? What could it shed light on for people to help them with this? Is it because someone said this before? It's like you know, oftentimes when we write memoirs or when we write about victims or people who've passed, you know, who are, who are the bodies that we mourn, right? Mm. And oftentimes that, that image of who you mourn isn't necessarily an Asian man, right? Like oftentimes we, we're taught to, to mourn women, we're taught to mourn children, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, veterans, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, are you ever taught to mourn a Chinese waiter, Right. So there, there are different angles that I have to think about, like, well, what would someone like me and me writing a book, what are the um, additional uh, benefits from it? Right. Or, or openings that I can provide by um, sharing my particular story. Yeah. Wow. That was a great answer. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. And since we've talked about it a little bit, but not gotten into it, um, you know, the name of your memoir, again, is everything I learned. I learned in a Chinese restaurant. Um, so if I understand correctly, your parents, your father and your mother owned and operated the first Chinese restaurant in Detroit. Is that correct? No, it was, um, no, the first Chinese restaurant in Detroit, I think opened was like in, in 1910 or oh, 12 okay. or something like that. But, um, this restaurant was founded by my great grandfather in 1940. Oh, so okay. it wasn't, it was an old school one, but I like to think of it as the best Chinese restaurant in Detroit. Awesome. And so what I always do is I always ask, but guess how many egg rolls we sold in the 65 years that we owned the business. <laughs> oh, and that'll give you a sense of how popular we were. So. Oh, wow. 65 years of business egg rolls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm assuming two or four to an order. So, oh my gosh, I can't even, uh, I'll just say s- 5 million. <laughs> we sold over 10 million egg rolls. Oh my God. That I was mean, a pretty good guess. Yeah, but that was like, yeah. yeah, I was going high on purpose. That's an incredible number. I can't even wrap my head around it. That's yeah. awesome. They're all handmade too by my grandma and by my mom. So that's wow. how I know the figures. But yeah, no. Some people will say like eight thousand. I'm like, what? That's like a that's like a week, you know. <laughs> and some people will some people will be like billions. I'm like, yeah, no. Wow. So yeah, no. But that was the restaurant that I grew up in. That's you know the setting of the rest uh, of of my memoir, right? It's like all the things I learned in that Chinese restaurant, uh, things about life and people. And is the restaurant still open? No, sadly, when my dad passed away, I had to uh, I had to sell it. Oh, okay, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you sold it to someone and then they closed it or it just completely? Yeah, I, we sold it to somebody and then they operated for a number of years. But then when COVID hit, they, they shut down during COVID. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So, um, yeah. My brother wanted to ask you, <laughs> this is a very okay. important question. Um, he said whenever he goes to a new Chinese restaurant, <clears throat> he's from or he lived in Queens for like 20 years. So he's really into food. Mm-hmm. And, um he says, what's the best Chinese food dish to order to test the restaurant to see like what its quality is? I don't think there's a single one, right? Because every restaurant has its own specialty, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way it should be. Um, I always like to ask uh, restaurant owners, uh, you know, uh, what's the most popular dish? Okay, cool. As opposed to what's your favorite dish, do you know what I mean? Just to sort of get a sense. And that's oftentimes not even like the best um, – 
you know, estimate of like how good the food is. Right. Because there's always things that are on the secret menu or yeah. whatnot. I just start to, I just really try to have a rapport with whoever's serving because, you know, they will oftentimes divulge information to you. And the other thing that I will say about Chinese food too, or food in general is that I'm actually okay. Um, you know, with, with, uh, okay food, as long as the service is great, mm. but I won't do the opposite, right? <laughs> like if I, if, if food is great, but it's got sucky service, I won't go. Yeah. So for me, going out to a restaurant really isn't just about the food. It's the whole dining experience, right? It's about that hour, hour and a half that you're spending in that space. And that is also including the interaction, you know, with, with the waiters, right. And the managers and yeah. the other customers, right. So it's not just going to, um, Defining what's a good restaurant isn't just about the food. It's about everything. It's yeah. about the whole experience. Mm -hmm. I don't have your incredible experience, but I did manage restaurants for 10 years, and I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. And my wife uh, cringes every time we go to a restaurant if the service starts out shaky. Oh, my God. Like, oh, I no. get so tense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get, you get really, really judgmental, right? Because <laughs> you, you can criticize. You know, like, why aren't they doing this? Like, you know, if you're just passing by, why aren't you looking at the table and see yeah. if they need water refilled, right? <laughs> These are not hard. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. I'm sure oh, you and so I could get that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. it's great. Yeah, and I, um, we didn't really talk about the AIDS crisis. How do you feel, like, now in modernity with, like, the AIDS crisis? Is it, is it air quotes over? Is it something that we still need to talk about? You know, I grew up, I was born in 1981, so I was, like, the generation where we thought sitting on a toilet seat gave you AIDS, you know? It was, like, embarrassingly mm -hmm. horrible. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. So where are we? Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, you know, now you get into really philosophical discussions, <laughs> right? Like, is anything ever really ever done? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, no, yeah. nothing is ever completely done. Things are always just, you know, different flux and stuff like that. And so I, I don't think, you know, the AIDS, I mean, to use the term crisis, maybe they don't use that term anymore. Mm -hmm. But people are still getting AIDS, you know, people are still dying from it. Um, you know, uh, having been at the beginning of that, you know, uh, global, you know, pandemic or what do you might want to call it? Uh, it was a really different time period, right? I mean, it really did shape my idea of like, you know, thinking that I would be dead by the age of 30. Oh, right? I wow. really didn't think I had a long life. Oh, well, man. I mean, think about it, right? Yeah. Like every time you saw somebody on TV that was gay, you know, or who had a, yeah. it, it was a correlation, right? Like yep. gay totally. equals AIDS, AIDS equals death. There was a direct line in that thinking. And so even if I saw anybody who's gay, even if you didn't think that they had AIDS, you'd be, even if you didn't know if they had AIDS, you'd be like, oh, they will get AIDS. They will be dead soon. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was that bad. And so, you know, um, I think back on that time period, um, and I've talked to other people who are around my age, and a lot of them feel that they, they went through that same journey as well, right? And there's a certain amount of survivor, um, not guilt, but a survivor's appreciation or something. Okay. Feeling, well, we made it through, and yet, you know, we've had these great lives, and we've been able to contribute and give back in that way, um, you know? So, yeah, that was definitely a generational thing to pull back to, you know, your original question, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, and I think that the lessons of it are, are important, um, you know, particularly uh, when you're looking at communities, civil rights, people fighting back. And, you know, there is also a lot of parallels, even just with the recent COVID, um, you know, years that yeah. we went through. Oh, I definitely uh, felt yeah. that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, that was it was it was very eye-opening to be in my 
late thirties, early forties with COVID because I was, like I said, a child with AIDS, but I did see Mm -hmm. an interesting parallel. Um, but I want to get back to asking you questions. So, um, Mm -hmm. uh, another unfortunate ham fisted segue, but, um, recently (laughs) there's (laughs) recently there's been a lot of, um, anti-Semitism in America and that follows in the wake of a lot of, um, what they call, you know, anti-Asian or Asian hate. Um, and so Mm -hmm. as someone who's Jewish and someone whose son, is Asian, I'm pretty darn uh, psychologically affected by both, but I'm also aware that there's just a lot of hate in the world and there's hate against a lot of different groups and it's not that we're special or being targeted. However, I am curious, do you feel like America is currently wrapping its head around this and we're improving or do you think we're very much in the early stages of something that needs more focus and attention, specifically hate against minorities? Well, I'm an eternal optimist. Um, I think the other thing, too, is that people from roughly my years to your years, we mm-hmm. sort of grew up in a, in, a, in a certain window, right, in American history or even world history. Because if you talk to people, um, you know, who are older than us and, you, and they talk about, like, you know, what, what America was like beforehand, you know, with the KKK and all these other, you know, hate groups around – they were really prominent. So can you really say that what we're going through is, is worse than what they went through? You know, yeah. definitely when we had slavery or definitely when we, you know, you know, rounded up all the Native Americans, you know, or when we threw the Japanese Americans into, you know, incarcerated them. You know what I mean? Like yeah. those things were far worse than what we're going through now. So maybe, you know, um, we are we, we've uh, taken a few steps back. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that overall we're still making progress. Right. Um, I do think that uh, sadly, I do think that that hate will always be around. You're never going to completely eradicate it. But what the goal is, is to um, be able to respond to it when it does happen and also to send a message to people who may otherwise be driven by it to know that it's wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, and so those are the things that we can work on. And in that sense, I do think that. Um, you know, our country's in a much better place and the ability of communities to sort of respond to these things is much, much better. Um, I know for Jewish Americans, it seems like, you know, your community has a long history in the U.S. of fighting for civil rights, right? Um, you know, for our community as Asian Americans, uh, it's taken us a little while to build that same infrastructure that your community has had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you think back to like the 80s, uh, when I was growing up, we didn't have anything. Uh, when, when one of our family friends was murdered in a hate crime you know there was no media to cover it there were no uh, politicians to speak out against it there were no celebrities to use social media to to elevate it there were there wasn't a national network of nonprofits to advocate right we had nothing right and so flash forward 40 odd years later um you know when the rise of anti-asian hate was happening during covid at least our community was able to respond and raise awareness about it so people talked about it right yeah. and that alone is a victory to me right and so in that sense um i know our community as asian americans um have gotten much better i know that you know i mean my sense is you know for jewish americans again because you guys have a longer history of of, of fighting it i mean it's it's too bad that there seems to be like this backslide right mm-hmm. where it's like it seemed like for a few you know decade a couple decades it seemed like people didn't talk about anti-semitism much right because yeah. there hadn't been any high profile cases or anything like that but then you know now you realize that oh that stuff has always been there will always be there and now you know you actually have nazis walking in the streets again of america i mean so you know 
but how is that different than when the KKK used to ride around, you know, in their hoods? Uh, so I don't, you know. Yeah, I don't, no, I don't know. It's definitely it's fascinating to hear you explain it that way. It's it's interesting because I I have such a warped perspective because I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the '80s, so I grew up uh, immersed with Asian culture and. We yeah. were taught in school about the railroad. We were taught in school about mm. the internment camps. Uh, we had speakers yeah. come who were in the internment camps, um, which I know is Japan, but it's still Asian. And uh, so it's just interesting because <clears throat> I felt I, I was my mind was blown when I left home for college and went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And there were like mm. very few Asians there, very few Jewish people. Yeah. Very, <laughs> and yeah. so and I'm not, yeah. you know, it's yeah. So anyway, I um. My heart kind of breaks. I think just sometimes know. taking a step back, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, because oftentimes when we, we think about our current situation, we only, our frame of reference is really the personal experiences we've had. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes that's quite limited, but if you take a step back, whether it's through history or geography, uh, have a more expansive, then I think that sometimes maybe that makes you feel better, right. Cause then you don't feel as, um, bound in by that yeah. or like, you know, yeah. No, that's great. I I really appreciate your your tone. I appreciate what you're trying to do on Earth. I appreciate you, and I um I really like the way you guide. Even in my questioning, you're you're guiding people towards self reflection, patience, and tolerance. And I and I just could not appreciate it more. That's really what I want to do with my life is help people achieve what you have clearly achieved in your life. So. Thank you, Curtis. Um, yeah, I always give my guests an opportunity to just kind of have the floor at the end of the interview. So, is there anything you want to add? There will be uh, links and everything to find your book and your other works. No, my the, my catchphrase that I like to say is that even though I don't work in a Chinese restaurant anymore, I live my life as if I'm a Chinese waiter. That means I go around asking people, "How can I? How can I help you? What can I get you? You know, how can I make your life a little bit better?" I think that's a good way to sort of live life. It's like you know. How can you make other people's lives just a little bit better, no matter how little time you're spending with that person? Wow. I love it. Thank you so much, Curtis. This has been a really fun interview for me, and uh, I wish you immense success in the future. And to everyone listening at home, thank you again for tuning in to Coffin Talk. Again, the best way to support the show is to head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up for the free weekly philosophical humorous newsletter. Um, to everyone listening, again, my name is Mike Oppenheim. You've been listening to Coffin Talk with Curtis Chin, and we will see you soon.